God is truly worthy of our praise. These have been some difficult days, um, continuing to battle the pandemic. Um, I guess I, I feel a little bit like uh, Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. You know, it's like you go to bed, you wake up, you wash your hands, you do a few things, you wash your hands, you do a few things, you wash your hands, you do a few things, you wash your hands, and you go to bed and you get up the next morning and you do the same thing. Um, can feel a little bit monotonous. Um, I certainly miss our fellowship of gathering together, shaking hands, seeing your smiling faces, hugs. Um, I think it shows us the importance of fellowship, not just the aspect of worship, of coming together corporately, which is extremely important, but just the fellowship aspect of coming together as God's people and how much we miss that, um, just being able to see one another and encourage one another. So I trust that you're going to be encouraged uh, in the days ahead and encouraged through the message today. Uh, last week we talked about a living hope as we looked at Easter and we realized that uh, the bedrock of our living hope is the death and resurrection of Christ. And so today, I want to continue on in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, um, beginning in verse 6, and today we're going to be talking about genuine faith, uh, what genuine faith really involves. And so let's look together in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. So, genuine faith. Peter had a lot of problems in his life. He had a lot of challenges. And I love Peter because I can relate to Peter. Peter had a lot of failures. He had a lot of mistakes. He disappointed the Lord. And I can raise my hand too because I'm right there along with Peter. In fact, I identify so close with Peter, maybe my name should have been Peter. Maybe you feel that way as well. But how do we develop genuine faith in the midst of suffering and pain? We develop genuine faith in the midst of suffering and pain, not in spite of suffering and pain, but actually because of suffering and pain. That's how genuine faith is developed. Suffering is a necessity to keep us humble and dependent upon God's grace. If you go back into 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, maybe jot that down and check it out later. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he said, to torment him, to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him humble, and to keep him dependent upon God's grace. And he said that in his weakness, God's strength was made perfect. And so in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect, and in our weakness... We need God's grace, and as we rely upon his grace, we exercise our faith to trust God for what we cannot handle on our own. 
So in 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So we have to humble ourselves to receive that grace that God wants to give us. And we need that grace because when we're going through suffering and hard times, we need the grace of God. We talked last week at the end about how one of the things I look to the Lord for daily is grace to strengthen me, mercy to sustain me, his love to surround me, all those things we should be praying for, God's peace to settle me, um, God's power to shield us, um, God's presence to steady us, and God's care uh, to secure us. So Peter knows the pain of disappointment. Um, after he had denied Christ the third time, the Bible says the rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. But what I want to encourage us with today is the fact that the Peter that we see in 1 Peter is not the Peter that we see in the Gospels. He is a very different man. And what was it about Peter that made him different? I think that his faith became a genuine faith. And what do I mean by genuine faith? I mean a faith that is real and authentic. It is not plastic. It is not counterfeit. It is not fake. It is genuine. It is real. It is authentic. And so we're, today we're going to look at three aspects of genuine faith. And I'm going to just give them to you right now, but we're going to look at them. Faith, genuine faith, number one, is founded on God's Word. Number two, it is forward-looking. And number three, it moves us toward Christ-likeness. So it's founded on God's Word. It is forward-looking. And it moves us toward Christ-likeness. See, genuine faith is not based on emotion. It is not based on my circumstances, and it is a faith that will go the distance. It is a faith that perseveres in suffering, in hardship, in pain. That's what genuine faith does, and that's what Peter's talking about because these people, as we looked at last week, are facing incredible opposition. Some are losing their lives, going through incredible suffering and loss. And yet it's their genuine faith that Peter says is going to cause them to persevere and get through to the other side. Genuine faith is a faith that will endure through thick and thin. It is a faith that pleases God. Genuine faith, however, is not, does not live in denial of our past. Rather, it is a faith that realizes that God has redeemed our past for His glory. Yes, all of us have a past. There are things I would love to have erased from my past that I can't go back and erase, but the blood of Jesus Christ covers those sins. And that's the beautiful part of genuine faith. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he forgives us of all of our sins. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what genuine faith will do. So have you done that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I'm reminded of a story of a, a couple nuns who worked at a Catholic hospital. And they were heading home after their shift one evening. And as they were heading home, they 
had put in a long day and they were tired and they didn't pay any attention to the gas gauge and they were only a part of the way home and their, their gas gauge was on empty and they ran out of gas and they're on the side of the road and they're wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to get gas? And, and then one of the nuns remembered and told her friend, you know what? <clears throat> we have a bedpan in the trunk from the hospital. We can take that bedpan and go back, walk back to the gas station and get some gas. It's not very far back there. And we can bring that bedpan and dump that in the gas tank. Now, it sounds pretty crazy, but hey, when you're desperate, you do what you do. And so they did that. They walked back. They got the gas. They both carefully carried it back not to spill it. And as they're tipping that bedpan and pouring the gas into the gas tank, these two guys drive by, Fred and Ralph. And Fred says to Ralph, he said, you know, he said, now that's what I call faith. You see, they didn't really fully understand what was inside that bedpan. And I think that people don't understand truly what's inside the believer, why we can be resilient even in the face of suffering. It's because of the genuine faith that is inside of us, that God has given to us. And so notice what Peter says here at the outset. He says, in the midst of this suffering, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, that doesn't make sense that you would rejoice in suffering. Nobody wants suffering. It is the gift. I call suffering the gift that nobody wants, but everybody needs. We all need it because we need to be humbled, and we need to know that we need the grace of God, and we need to put our faith in the grace of God, and the way God does that is he brings things into our life that are bigger than us, that are more difficult for us to handle, and we have to trust him. So... Why is Peter saying, in this you greatly rejoice in suffering? I don't think he's telling us to rejoice in our suffering. I think he's telling us to rejoice in what God has provided for us to endure suffering. Here, let me give you an example of what we talked about last week. Believers rejoice in spite of current suffering. Why? Three reasons believers rejoice in spite of current suffering. Number one, believers rejoice in spite of current suffering because of the security of our salvation. And where is the security of our salvation? It is founded on the word of God. What does he tell us? If we go back to verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have new birth in Jesus Christ. And when we're going through suffering, we need to be reminded that God has given us new birth in Christ. And suffering can't take that away from us. He has also given us that through a living hope. A living hope through the new birth. Well, guess what we need when we're going through suffering? Living hope. And God has provided that. So I can rejoice in my suffering because God has given me a hope that looks beyond that suffering and enables me to endure the suffering that I'm going through. The bedrock of our living hope, as we looked at last week, is the death and resurrection of Christ. The blessing of our living hope is God's gifts to us, and I'm just going to mention them quickly. We talked about them last week. Number one was the gift of inheritance. Why am I rejoicing in suffering? Because I have an inheritance that can never be taken away from me. It can never be stripped. He said it will never perish, spoil, or fade. 
That is the inheritance I have. No amount of suffering can ever strip that away from me. That's why I can rejoice in suffering. It's a future salvation, eternal life. It already exists and it's reserved and preserved for me and there's no threat of cancellation. It has my name on it and if you're a believer, it has your name on it and God has that place secured for you for eternity. So that's wonderful that we can rejoice in that, even in the midst of suffering. The second gift is a gift of protection. We are shielded by God's power. That power guarantees our inheritance. It is guarded by God continuously, and it cannot be stripped from us. That's a wonderful blessing. The third gift and blessing that God gives us in the security of our salvation is the gift of faith. That's what we're talking about today, the gift of faith, the genuine faith that God has given us. It's a steadfast loyalty and commitment and trust in God. We have an eternal security because of our salvation. And no amount of suffering can take that away from us. So in that, we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Remember, I encouraged us last week to list the blessings to thank God from A to Z. And if you haven't done that, do that. Get out a piece of paper and begin to write down the blessings of God from A to Z. We are so blessed. And to take our focus off our current situation. Secondly, believers rejoice in spite of current suffering. And this is important. Because suffering is part of God's plan. See, suffering is not outside the plan of God. It's actually part of the plan of God. God included suffering to be part of the Christian life. And that's important to recognize. He tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There'll be pain. There'll be suffering. It's part of God's plan. God knew that we would face suffering in this life, and that's why he gave us the security of our salvation, not only presently, but in the future. That's how it gives us endurance, and we can trust him. We have been chosen, if we go back to verse 2 of 1 Peter, he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has chosen us in Christ. That is a great blessing. And even though we've been chosen, we've also been chosen to suffering. God chose us because of his great love. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Why did he choose us? The Bible, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm not going to take the time to read it all, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 9, it says that the Lord loved you, it was because the Lord loved you. That's why he chose you. His great love for us caused him to choose us. Suffering was part of God's message through the prophets as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if we look a little bit later in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Listen, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So see, suffering is a part of God's plan in this life. We'll be free of suffering in the next. 
Praise God. So Christ suffered in his body, and he is our example. It talks about the sufferings of Christ. He is our example. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this, he said, you were called. See, we were called to this kind of life. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So how can we rejoice in this suffering? We rejoice in this suffering because of the new birth, the inheritance that is shielded, protected by God, and we rejoice in that because the suffering is going to end one day. And we're going to be in God's presence. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we'll be pain-free. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. All those things will be passed away. That's why we can rejoice today. Thirdly, believers rejoice in spite of current suffering because we have forward-looking faith. We do have forward-looking faith. We're looking forward to that day when we will be with Christ, when we'll be away from this corrupt, sin-cursed earth and be with God forever. Not only be delivered, to, now we're delivered from the power of sin, but we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. And that's forward-looking faith. You see, the suffering and glorification of Christ provides a model for our suffering and glorification. We don't know today what kind of suffering God is going to allow to come into our lives tomorrow, but we do know and we can be assured that whatever suffering comes will be used by God to prepare us for our glorification. You see, what does Jesus' model provide for us in our suffering? What does Jesus model for us in his suffering? Forward-looking faith. You see, the reason some people don't do well with current suffering is because they aren't looking forward in faith. When you're driving a car and you're going down the road, you can't just look at where you are. You have to look at where you're going. You have to look down the road to see if children are coming or animals are coming or a ball's rolling in the street. If you don't look ahead, you can have a serious accident. You have to look ahead. You have to look forward. You can't stare in the rearview mirror all the time. You have to look forward through the windshield. And that's what Peter is encouraging these Jewish Christians in Asia Minor to do, to look forward in faith, past their suffering today, to their future with God forever. There was a guy I golfed with years ago, and when he would ever get on the green to putt, if you're a golfer, most people, when they putt, they'll look at the ball, and they putt the ball to get it into the hole. He actually did the opposite. He actually looked at the hole, and he did not look at the ball, and he would putt because he said, I'm, I'm trying to get the ball there, and I want to look at where I'm hitting the ball. <laughs> it was a little bit unique, but it worked for him. Um, he said, you know, in basketball, you look at the hoop, and anyhow, looking ahead, forward-looking faith. Remember Lot's wife, instead of looking ahead to where they were going, she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Reminds me of the guy that uh, his wife was driving down the road, and she looked back and turned into a telephone pole. 
Anyhow, I wish I could hear your laugh on that one. Um, we have an eternal security because of our salvation. And because of that eternal security and our salvation, don't live life looking in the rearview mirror and don't live life simply looking at we're going through a pandemic. Look beyond the pandemic. Look beyond the virus. God has a city whose maker and builder is God. And that's what we have to look forward to as Christians. And we need to thank God for that. Forward-looking faith allowed Jesus to endure the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, and listen to this, for the joy set before him. How did he know that joy was set before him? He had a forward-looking faith. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Forward-looking faith. And what does he tell us to do? He says in Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Stop and consider the suffering that Jesus went through that we can't have anything near in comparison. If we stop and consider the suffering that Jesus went through, it's going to give us endurance when facing overwhelming circumstances. Think about the circumstances Jesus faced, the sin of the world on his shoulders, the ridicule, the insults, the abuse, the shame, the torture that he went through for us. And that brings encouragement to us because Jesus endured how? Who for the joy set before him. Think of the joy of heaven. No more sickness, no more sorrow. No more disappointment. You see, endurance comes from forward-looking faith. Endurance comes from resistance training. Uh, years ago, this may be hard to believe looking at my body now, I used to lift weights on a regular basis. And I actually got pretty strong because I did it faithfully three times a week. I had a membership at a health club. I went there and I worked out faithfully. And this is even harder to believe. Um, there was a time when I actually drank protein shakes and I would take ice cream, I would take banana, uh, strawberries, honey, and yes, even a couple raw eggs. <laughs> and I'd put those raw eggs in there and I'd mix it all up and I'd drink it to give me protein to grow my muscles and to grow stronger. The other thing was... <laughs> Believe it or not, I was actually trying to gain weight. I was so skinny. You know, I had to wear skis in the shower so I didn't go down the drain. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so skinny, um, I was trying to put on weight and muscle. And so, but doing that three times a week. But what gave me the endurance in, in gaining strength was the resistance. And that's what happens in our life. God brings opposition and resistance into our life so that we have that endurance then that builds up from that resistance. And God actually builds our spiritual muscles as we go through those things. What did, what did the ancients get praised for? Well, if you look in Hebrews 11 too, it says the ancients were praised or commended for their faith. Why were they commended for their faith? Because their faith caused them to endure through suffering and their faith caused them to look forward to what lied ahead. 
Here's what it says in Hebrews 11:13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Now, I know there's some students out there who think they're not going to get through eighth grade. Forward-looking faith says you will. Maybe you need to talk to your teacher, too, but... Uh, some parents might say, well, you know, I can't handle my children at home all day with all this stuff going on, and uh, forward-looking faith says you can. Some employees may say, I can't deal with the negative attitudes of some of my coworkers. Forward-looking faith says you can. I think of the example of Abraham. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abraham. Notice Abraham was a man of faith. When he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Notice this carefully. For he was looking forward. You see, that's what genuine faith does. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Wow, that's encouraging to me. Forward-looking faith allowed Abraham to endure even the test of sacrificing his son. I mean, we, can, we don't even have time to think about the implications of, of what that would have meant emotionally for either one of them. But forward-looking faith allowed him to do that. And he tells us later in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And then God stopped him because he saw that he trusted God. But here's what Abraham said. It said, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So see, Abraham was looking forward that even if God took his son, he looked forward to the fact that God could raise him back up. Forward-looking faith. What kind of impact did Abraham's faith have on his family because of that forward-looking faith? It had to have a great impact. We as parents, our forward-looking faith is going to have an impact on our children. As we're going through this pandemic, what is your attitude? Do you have a forward-looking faith or are you just sitting here just, oh man, we've got to go through this again today? Um, what about tomorrow? What about 500 years from now? What about 1,000 years from now? We have an inheritance in Christ. We only are going through this for a little while. Moses endured suffering with God's people in Egypt because of his forward-looking faith. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, listen, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, not fearing the present, the king's anger presently, not fearing what's going on with the virus and all. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible, because his faith is looking forward. What happened when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt? God acted by parting the Red Sea because they were forward-looking in their faith to even march. The people acted in faith to go to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea for them. God acted by providing manna from heaven 
The people acted by eating what God provided. Now it's interesting. After the Israelites are out there in the wilderness and they finally get to the Jordan River to cross the Jordan River, God reverses this. Instead of God acting first, now he's asking the people to act first. They cross the Jordan River and God turns it around and he asks the people to act first by marching around the walls of Jericho. God didn't destroy the walls first. He told them to march around the walls to be forward-looking in their faith that by doing that, God is going to take care of it. And he did. The people acted, walking around, and then God acted, bringing the walls down. Maybe there's something in your life right now that God is asking you to do, to act in faith. Maybe that simple act of faith is confessing your sin to God, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I realize I'm lost, but you have not acted yet. And God has been convicting you maybe of your sin. And now it's time that God is knocking on the door of your heart, convicting you, and you need to act so that God then can act and come into your life and give you the living hope, give you the new birth, give you an inheritance, give you an endurance, a genuine faith that will go the distance no matter what suffering or pain or hardship you have to go through. God will do that for you. Do you have some walls you need God to tear down? Are you walking around those walls with forward-looking faith? Well, the third aspect, we talked about three aspects of faith. It's founded on God's Word. There's forward-looking faith. The third aspect is it moves us toward Christ-likeness. It moves us toward Christ-likeness. You see, believers access the present and future blessings of salvation by genuine faith. That's how we access the blessings of God today and how they'll be accessed tomorrow is by genuine faith. And what does genuine faith do? It moves us toward Christ-likeness. It conforms us to the image of Christ. If we go back into our text in 1 Peter in verse 2, he says, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. And our response to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit should be one of obedience. And he says, for obedience then to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. So, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is designed, I'm going to say, for three things. Number one, to purify us, to separate us from sin, to get rid of impurities in our life. When we look down in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and actually the end of verse 6, he says, though now for a little while you have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. So we're suffering grief and all kinds of trials, and he says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, gold isn't going to last forever, it's going to perish, but he says, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What does fire do to gold? It purifies us. What does suffering do to our faith? It purifies it. What does it do? It brings, when gold is in the furnace of, a, in, of the fire, which they say needs to be about 1,900 degrees Fahrenheit, 
you put that gold in there and all the impurities rise to the top. And then the goldsmith is able to scoop off all the impurities and he knows when it's pure and all the impurities are removed when he looks into the gold and he sees a reflection of himself. That's how he knows the gold's pure. How does God remove the impurities of our life? Through suffering. What's he do here? Through suffering. What's he do in our lives through suffering? Why? Because the suffering is the furnace of affliction that God puts us through where the gold of our faith is put in the furnace of affliction. God burns it away. He burns away the impurities. They rise to the top and God scoops them off until he sees a reflection of himself. That's what he wants to see. He wants to see Christ's likeness in us. He wants to see the fruit of the Spirit in us, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith, meekness, temperance, all those things. Because that's what brings him glory, and that's what reflects him to the world. So he purifies us. So let me ask you a question. What impurity do you need to get rid of in your life? What sin do you need to confess to God? Is there a sin of pride, a sin of independence, Not seeking God? Is there a sin of hypocrisy where your external representation is not true to who you are on the inside? Are you one way with your classmates and another way with your parents? Are you one way with people at church and another way with how you do business? Or are you one way with a fellow believer but another way with people in the marketplace. Um, What does God want to purify out of your life? Secondly, the second sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is designed not only to purify us, but to prepare us. Prepare us for what? For service for God. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about the suffering and the insults they endured. But they said, in spite of the sufferings and the insults they endured, he said, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of the opposition. Why did they dare to tell the gospel in spite of suffering and opposition? Because they had a purified life from their suffering. They had a forward-looking faith from their suffering. They knew they had an eternal inheritance in Christ. So it prepares us for service for God. The third thing this sanctifying work of the Spirit does. It purifies us, it prepares us, and number three, it perfects us. Now when I say it perfects us, it doesn't make us perfect in this life, but it makes us mature. That's what he's talking about. In our suffering, we become more righteous. James says it this way in James 1.4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And the other thing we need to remember about trials is a couple things that are important. Number one, trials are short-lived. Notice he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have to suffer. Suffering is temporary. It is short-lived. Now, when we're going through it, it doesn't seem very temporary. It doesn't seem very short-lived. But in comparison to eternity, it's very, very minute. So it's short-lived. The second aspect about when we face trials is we need to realize that they're life-changing. 
They are absolutely life-changing. We don't go through suffering and pain and come out the other side unchanged. We will either become more hard or more humble. And so we can see this in the life of Peter. I mentioned that Peter is not the same Peter that we see in his epistle that we see in the gospel. Let's think about that for a minute. What did Peter really go through? Well, he went through some stuff, some painful stuff, some shameful stuff, and embarrassing stuff. Peter's faith was tested again and again. He denied Christ three times. Why? He felt shame. He felt fear. So he lied. Second time, he felt shame. Felt fear. He lied. Third time, he felt shame. Fear. He lied. And by the way, fear and pride are kind of cousins. They go together. There was a sense of pride in Peter, not wanting to identify with Christ. Now, it's really easy for us to say, man, what a shame, Peter. What was wrong with you? You saw all these things that God did, and yet you denied Christ, and what do we do? We can do the same thing. Uh, Peter walked on water, and then he sunk. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. It looks as though Peter is broken beyond repair that he's failed one too many times. But what did God do in Peter's life as a result of these seeming failures? He redeemed them for his glory. He redeemed them for his glory. Consider for a moment what God did for Peter. Peter got to be an eyewitness to the miracles of Jesus. He saw his authority over nature when he calmed the wind and the waves when they were in the boat. Peter watched Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two barley loaves. He saw that. Peter also witnessed Jesus rescue him from the waves and the wind when he sunk in the water. Peter experienced the forgiveness of God when he denied Christ three times and Jesus restored him to his place of ministry. Peter experienced God's power when he healed his mother-in-law from her deathbed. Peter miraculously saw God's delivering power when he was in prison and his chains fell off his wrist and the prison gate opened and he walked out. But what do we see the result of all this in Peter's life? The purity of his life? The power of his life and service? Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2. Now, he's a different man. In Acts chapter 2, he gets up and he shares the gospel with a multitude of people. The fearful Peter, the one who denied Christ, denied Christ, denied Christ. Now he gets up and he confesses Christ before thousands. And he was denying Christ before one. He preaches to thousands and 3,000 people are converted. Why? Because the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in Peter's life. Why? Because of the suffering that took all the impurities out of his life. He's not the same Peter. You see, God redeemed Peter's experiences for his sanctification and his glory. So let me encourage you to recount what God has done in your life. Go back and review The sufferings, the painful things in your life. 
Because God wants to redeem those. And maybe right now, you are still in anguish and pain and suffering, and you didn't know that there was a purpose for it. And God wants to use that purpose to redeem those experiences of pain and suffering for redemptive purposes. What kind of things has he taken you through in the past? What kind of failures has he redeemed? And what current failures does he want to redeem in your life for the present and future ministry in your life? Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 12, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. What does Peter encourage his readers to do in his second epistle at the very end? It's interesting. Now, Peter's lived his life, and at the very end of his epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to these words. He says, since everything will be destroyed, he's talking about the earth and everything's going to be destroyed at the end, what kind of people ought you to be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives, listen, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, as you look forward. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And then he goes on to say in 2 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward in keeping with his promise, what did we say genuine faith was bounded on? It is founded on God's word. Peter says, in keeping with his promise of God's word, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no pandemics there. There will be no viruses there. There will be no sickness there. No sorrow, no death, no tears. To a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, here's what he says. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Let's bow together for prayer. We hope you've enjoyed today's message like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.